Hey everyone, this is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Our guest today is Navy and Air Force veteran Gary Matheson. Gary was born on Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, where his father was flying B-52s as a bombardier navigator. Growing up around pilots his entire life inspired him to enlist in the military. And when the Gulf War began, Gary felt the need to serve. Gary's job required him to be prepared to survive being captured, which entailed he partake in strenuous training and overcome his fear of claustrophobia and heights. Navigating the military lifestyle placed hardships on Gary and his family. On top of that, the superintendent for a school district he was teaching for did not support his military service, which created financial stress on his family. If you enjoyed this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor and know anybody else who may, reach out to us on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you can email us at team at UrbanValor.com. Enjoy the show. Gary Matheson, Staff Sergeant. I was a uh, Navy Reserves eight years and then crossed over to the Air Force for almost another 19 years. And I was stationed at March Air Force Base with the Air Force Reserves. Served from, gosh, 1992 to 2018-ish. In the Navy, I was a uh, builder. And uh, after the Navy, I crossed over to the Air Force where I was a, one, a C-17 loadmaster, combat camera, and also a 141 loadmaster. Wow. So I had like four MOSs throughout my career. Yeah, nice. A lot, of, a lot of studying. I was born in Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana. My dad was flying B-52s at the time out of Barksdale. Uh, he was a bombardier navigator. I uh, lived there a couple of years, moved to D.C. where he was assigned to the Pentagon. After D.C., we moved to Colorado. From Colorado, we spent, gosh, four and a half years in Japan. Uh, when my dad was uh, going to Vietnam, they shipped us to March Air Force Base. We spent a year there while he was flying out of uh, Thailand. Wow. Uh, and then when he came back from Vietnam, we went to uh, Nebraska for four years. After Nebraska, Davis Monthan for a couple of years, and then up to uh, Beale Air Force Base uh, for almost five and a half years. Wow. So I lived around a lot. Is your dad, is he what inspired you to join the military or? Well, you know, uh, I love the fact that my dad wore a uniform. I loved and respected that uniform. Uh, seeing the air shows as a kid, uh, living around other military personnel. Uh, you know, when we were up at Beale Air Force Base, we had U-2 pilots, you know, living on our street, SR-71 pilots. Wow. Uh, had a, gosh, had a uh, lieutenant, retired lieutenant colonel that flew, uh, um, I think it was B-24s over Germany. Oh, wow. Know? So just being around. Uh, military people, just, I really liked it. About eight months before I graduated from high school, my dad came, was diagnosed with cancer, uh, and he was given about eight months to live. Uh, and uh, he passed away and was buried on my 18th birthday and found out that we qualified for his GI Bill. Mm. And that GI Bill, you know, it was like $200 a month, wasn't all a lot, but it was a little... And I said, okay, I can afford to go to junior college. So I went to junior college for two years and then transferred to Cal State Long Beach and finished up my other two years there. Finished up, you know, I was working for the airlines. I got married. My wife was getting her teaching credential. She talked to me into getting mine. So got my credential. And then uh, the Gulf War hit. Mm. And it was my first year teaching. Just bought a house up in Era at Crestline. And I'm watching the war kick off, and I thought, hey, I think I need to go do something. Mm. 
So I went down and talked to some recruiters, talked to Air Force, talked to the Navy, and uh, went Navy Reserves. I went in thinking I'd do 20 years, and then after eight, I'm thinking, no, I'm going to get out. Mm. And I was supposed to get out in December, uh, and 9-11 hit. Mm. And 9-11 hit, I go, okay, there's going to be a stop loss. I'm not going anywhere. I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to stay because I knew what we were going to be at war at some time, but I didn't want to stay in the Navy. Right. So I finished up my Navy career in December and I talked to an Air Force recruiter and uh, I was able to start with the Air Force Reserves in January. So I went in, crossed over and uh, started going to load school from 141s. And that's the load master is responsible from behind the flight deck all the way back, the mm-hmm. entire back end of the aircraft is your responsibility. Get to know uh, the formulas and the restrictions of the aircraft, fuel consumption aircraft, all that. Wow, so, uh, pretty intense training for uh, for school. I think I did more studying in the military than I did in my civilian job. Yeah, uh, it's like you know when we did air shows, and you know you had a woman with high heels on and with spikes. Mm-hmm. You'd have to have her take her shoes off because she may go through the floor with that. Really? Yeah. Because the PSI that's on that little, you know, heel could actually puncture a hole in the aircraft. Oh, wow. So, you know, you had to know all the restrictions. And the 141, it had different PSIs throughout the, the aircraft because it had different thicknesses of the, of the floor. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, you have tanks. You put tanks on board. You put, you know, vehicles with hard rubber wheels or soft rubber wheels. And you had to know all the math calculations and that. Plus, you got to tie those things down. Yeah. So you have to know the calculations for all the G going forward, back, aft, all that. So, you know, you got your tape measure out, you're measuring the angles and making sure that those are secured properly. And, and so it was a very interesting job. I loved it. Uh, and very challenging. Yeah. What what type of training did you have to go through uh, to become a loadmaster? Well, you know, with the loadmaster, you had to go through basic load school and that was a calculation portion and at that time they wouldn't use let us use cal- calculators mm. and it's like wait a minute calculators have been around quite a long time now and their their response was well if it breaks i go i'll buy another ten dollar calculator i'll <laughs> i'll have three in my flight bag yeah. they go no so we had to do everything by hand and each problem would take about 45 minutes wow. and you had to have graph sheets just to keep all the numbers in line so that you know you didn't drift over into another another section and and, uh, you know, you're multiplying, dividing, you know, thousands with decimals and all that. And yeah. it was amazing how many people washed out because they could not do the math quick enough, uh, to qualify. If you screw that up and load the plane wrong, what, what, what are the consequences? Yeah. Consequences is that, uh, the plane doesn't get off the, the tarmac and it's running through the fence. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's very important that the weight, the weight and balance of the aircraft is important. Plus... The equipment that you know, the pallets that are coming on, and the and the vehicles that you're loading, that those were weight correctly, and that the center, especially in a vehicle, you have to find the center of gravity for the middle, a CG, and you got to weigh it all. Well, we had an issue uh, situation. I think it was Afghanistan, to where you know an army unit weighed their Humvee, and they put the CG in. Well, after that, they threw all their bags on in the back of the Humvee. Mm. And when they loaded it, you know, loadmaster assumed that that was the center of gravity for the entire vehicle with the bags. Well, it wasn't. 
So that plane never got off the tarmac, went through the fence, and uh, killed the loadmaster because oh, everything went forward. Damn. And I don't, do you recall that airplane that went down outside Afghanistan after it took off the civilian aircraft? Uh, I don't. This this last Afghanistan uh, during the pullout? No, it was, uh, gosh, uh, in the middle of the war there. So uh, a, a civilian aircraft had a bunch of uh, vehicles on board. They had landed in, I think it was Bagram. And uh, they overnighted there, and then they took off the next day. Well, they didn't check the you know their equipment to make sure everything was secured. And when it took off, the entire load shift, one of the vehicles broke loose, and all that weight went to the tail end of the aircraft. Oh. And there was somebody actually driving on the road, videoing it as it took off, and it just straight down. Oh, killed uh, three three people. The pilot. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I remember I flew over that two days later, and I'm up in the cockpit and I was taking pictures. It was just the tail left on it. So, you know, we take our job pretty seriously because uh, if we don't do our job correctly, yeah, we're, we're, you know, people die. So when uh, uh, that happens, they go straight to the loadmasters? Well, they, they, the thing is, civilians don't have flying loadmasters. Mm. You know, somebody will go on board, double check everything, but, you know, in the Air Force, we would always do a walk around, make sure everything's done correctly and stuff. So if if the plane sat overnight, we would have to do a full-blown uh, pre-flight. If it only sat 12 hours, within 12-hour period, we would not have to do a pre- full-blown pre-flight. We'd do a quick check. Mm. Well, some, they didn't do a you know full check, and yeah. uh, people lost their lives. Wow. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so... Math calculations are obviously important. What other type of training did you yeah. have to go through? Yeah, uh, you know, went over for uh, C-17, had to learn the aircraft, uh, everything about it. Like I said, the PSI is on the floor, uh, the, the height to the aircraft, and, you know, how much weight we're bringing in because if we're bringing something in heavy, we don't want the nose popping up. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure it comes in correctly. We have to make sure that if a vehicle is going on board and doesn't hit the top of the you know, the inside of the plane. Uh, so went through that that school and then went through, got survival training. Yeah. And I was 40 years old when I went through that. I was a wow. butt kicker. Uh, and then POW training. Yeah. And during POW training, you know, I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing here? 40 years old. I can be home. I, you know, I can be with the family and I can be doing a lot of other things besides freezing my ass off and going through this. This, you know, POW training, which was pretty brutal. Yeah. Is that SEER school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So t- what, what was that? What's that training like? I mean, obviously, I know uh, everybody gets captured, right? Yep. You get captured no matter what. <laughs> you know, they, they find you. Yeah. And then they all haul your ass to the detention center and they just start, you know, whooping your butt and you know, you're going through interrogations. You're watching other people getting slapped around and. You know, it's not real torture, but it's stuff that, you know, gets you not wanting to be there. Right. Uh, but the worst part is that, you know, you're going through all this, then they take you out of that and send you back to the barracks. Hmm. Like, what? We're going out of that, and we're going to the barracks, and then they're briefing us, and the next day they brief us on what more to expect, how to respond, you know, you experienced this, this is how you should have respond, we don't expect you, you know to die for the country, but, you know, don't give 
information that can be useful, but, you know, come home with respect, basically. Mm -hmm. They don't expect you to look at the torture that the Vietnam prisoners went through, you know, and the prisoners and POWs in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. you know, McCain listening to his stories and stuff. You know, at some point you will break. Right. But you still don't want to give them and break that information up to where it won't be useful. Right. So then, you know, this whole time we're going, wait a minute, we're going back tomorrow. We're going back into that tomorrow for four days. I, I don't want to. You know, I, I wish they would have just kept me in there. But, you know, the whole thought, I'm going back into captivity. Yeah. And, yeah, we get on the bus. They put the hoods on, and we're going back in. And we're being dropped off. And the yelling, the screaming, the bealing, the kicking, the hitting, all, all that starts. Uh, and uh, it was pretty cold when I was there. It was in November. I mean, even, you know, when we're doing the search and rescue portion, I remember putting my canteen, you break the ice and sticking it in the mud puddle just to get the water. Mm. And, uh, you know, they strip you down to your pants and you're out there freezing your ass off. And, you know, over a couple of days period, it felt like my fingernails were just being pulled out because it was so cold. Uh. And, uh, you know, some of the things they do, they get the fire hose and they just hose you down. And if you, you know, if you're not talking, they get the big old concrete cylinder that's buried in the ground and they'll put like three or four of you in there and put a grate over it and then start filling up with water. Oh shit. And then, you know, it's just, and then putting you in a small, tiny little box, a little box like that, you know, they'd find one where I can barely squeeze in. So they get you and they push you in there and they close that box up. That's when I found, you know, I knew I was kind of partial claustrophobic and that was one of the hardest, hardest just being in that box for hours. And then, you know, they'll put you in your prisoner box and you can't stand up. There's not a whole lot of room. And every time you heard the door open, you had to have your fingers up on top of the door so they see your fingers. So, you know, you couldn't sleep. You're trying to sleep. And, you know, the the sound of uh, a radial saw going through wood, they were playing that all night long. And this music, just loud stuff. And they gave you a little can you know to shit in if you needed to with one square <laughs> well you know i knew i was going in i'm going you know what i ain't taking no shit i was i was popping anti-diarrhea pills oh wow <laughs> so i didn't have to take a dump wow i was plugged up the entire time and, <laughs> you know i told a couple of pilots you know that were going through out hey plug yourself up man yeah they came back said oh my god we owe you for that one <laughs> wow the POW channel was very, very difficult. And then right after that, I was looking forward because I was going to Florida for water survival. Oh. Got to, got to Florida, Pensacola, and it was pretty damn cold. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, it wasn't summer weather. Yeah. It was November. And, uh, you know, we started learning all, all about, you know, if you parachute in the water, how do you react, how do you get your raft up, stuff like that. And they didn't parachute us in, but what they did is they had this, uh, a boat that was designed to get paracels up and they take you up quite a bit. You know, they had a flag that was maybe six foot by six foot. They said, when you see this waving back and forth, unclip and you know, you float down into the water. It's like, oh, that's a big flag. Well, they send you so high up. You're going, is that flag going back and forth? Cause you can barely see the boat. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was so damn small. And, yeah. I'm scared of heights. <laughs> oh, man. I'm scared of heights. I mean, you can put me on a roof. And I worked for my brother's roofing company, and I was scared to even go towards the edge. So I'm up there, and I'm going, God, they, and then you're afraid that you might unclip the wrong thing, that you unclip yourself out of the, out of the oh, parachute. Oh, wow. So, you know, I unclipped, and I 
parachute right on down, got in the water, and, and I sat in my, my life raft for, gosh, about six, seven hours, hoping there wasn't any sharks. <laughs> really? Yeah. And so they, they're just teaching you how to survive yep. in the water. Uh, yep. And, you know, you get, they give you this little survival kit, and you try and do a little fishing without poking a hole in your raft and stuff like that. Now, are you guys doing this as a team? or? or? No, no, we were... All over the place. Solo. Yeah, solo. I mean, the closest person was maybe a mile away and another mile. So you're you're there by yourself, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you go, oh, I hope they don't forget about me out here. Wow. So you're claustrophobic. <laughs> they're putting you in little, little boxes. Box. <laughs> and then they're afraid of heights. They're making you care. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I didn't tell them I was claustrophobic. I didn't tell them I was scared of heights because I wanted to fly. I was on my last training mission. I was in Florida, Tampa Bay. And uh, it was Valentine's Day. And the aircraft commander came to dinner and he goes, oh, call your family. You, you, we're not going home. I said, what? Yeah, uh, we got presidential activation. We're going to England. Mm. So we all got on phones, called home, said, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, we're heading to England. When are you, you going to be home? Don't know. So off to England, we went the next day. Wow. So we were at Milden Hall. And it, it was kind of neat being in Mildenhall because when my dad was with the uh, SR in the, in the U-2 program at a Beale Air Force Base, he would TDY Okinawa and Mildenhall. So here I got to go where he used to work. Oh, wow. He, you know, which is pretty neat. You know, here I am, you know, in the footsteps. Yeah, that's super cool. So that was neat being there. Mm. And uh, so we were uh, just running missions down into the Middle East, uh, putting special ops teams in. Uh, munitions, supplies. This is for the invasion of Iraq, right? For the invasion of Iraq, mm-hmm. yeah. Because Saddam, you know, wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing with the UN inspections. Right. So, uh, you know, we were there a couple months, and then I'm sitting there watching TV, CNN, and, you know, they're saying that the U.S. has launched their attack. You know, Tomahawk missiles were launched, and uh, ground forces were going in. And we were next up. My phone rang in my room and said, hey, you're alerted. So, you know, half hour, we'd have to be ready on the bus and off to the briefing room. And we went through our briefing and stuff, got to the plane, loaded, I think, 150 troops, and then uh, flew all the way down to Kuwait City. Oh, wow. Dropped them off. Uh, we were ready to, we locked up, got our fuel, 150,000 pounds of fuel, ready to take off. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking out the windows, I see siren, you know, the siren lights going. And ended up, uh, Kuwait City was being attacked from Iraq. Uh, that, you know, they were sending Scud missiles. So the aircraft commander, you know, calls it, calls the tower, hey, we're ready to go. They go, you guys ain't going anywhere. We got Tomahawk crews and Scuds above. So put your Kim gear on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we sat on the tarmac for two and a half hours, you know, with 150,000 pounds of fuel sitting on a big gas tank. You know, wonder if we were going to get hit. Right. And, uh, you know, we're looking outside and everything that's going on. And, and fortunately, we were okay and we were able to launch. But uh, over the Mediterranean, we had a hydraulic emergency landing and a hydraulic system failure. Oh, really? Uh, we did an emergency landing in Sicily. Uh, there about eight hours, they repaired us. And then back to England, we went mm. and sat on, you know, alert status wow. until we were next ones up to go back down into Kuwait. So you just go through a rotation? Uh, yeah, we had uh, like A, B, and C, so yeah. different rotations. So, you know, if you're in Bravo Alert, Delta Alert, stuff like that. So when, you, you know, when you're 
there, you, you couldn't go anywhere. You just sat in your room because they didn't have cell phones back then. Mm-hmm. And we had to be ready within 30 minutes. Once the aircraft commander called, hey, 30 minutes, you're packed, you're out the door. So uh, you had to be ready. So, so. What was your mission uh, flying in the Iraq? Uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the war, we we're just troops, munitions, supplies, stuff like that. And then as uh, casualties started hitting, uh, they redeployed us to Germany, Ramstein, where the big medical hospital facility is. And then we started flying medevacs out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'd fly down, pick up the critically wounded, and uh, bring them on back. Or we picked up HRs and brought them back to Germany. Yeah. To, we just do that rotation. And then every now and then we'd be rotated back to the states and if we went to andrews we took the critically wounded if we went to dover we took human remains and then you know back to england we went and there were times when you know when we went to the east coast we were told hey you guys you know we're gonna fly you back to march you got two weeks off so wow great so you know you call family hey i'm coming home for you know i've got two weeks leave and you know, we take off, we're halfway across uh, the con. you know, halfway across states, and next thing you know, hey, guys, we've been diverted, so we're not going home, mm. you know? And then it happened so many times where my wife said, don't call. Yeah. Don't even let me know when you're coming. Uh, I, I wouldn't even call until I was physically in my car driving on the freeway back home. Huh. I call her up and say, hey, I'm home. How long for? They said two weeks. Okay. So I get home. Wash my clothes, you know, sleep in a nice bed, get to be with the family. And then I get a call, uh, second day in, hey, report back tomorrow. Because the pilots were staffed at 165%. So we had a ton of pilots because yeah. all the airlines were for, you know, doing furloughs. So they all came to the reserves and, you know, they were flying and they, there was a lot of pilots, but loadmasters were only 65% manned. So we were constantly just being put on different crews and, and going. Wow. So that, you know, was put a lot of pressure on the family. Yeah. What was it like uh, uh, doing uh, medivacs? It was pretty darn difficult. You know, this to see these uh, men and women that were uh, uh, hurt pretty bad. Yeah. You know, I remember one person, one, one guy, and he must have had like 200 stitches just keeping his face on. Oh. You know, and then, you know, some of the ones being brought on in the litters with body parts missing, you know, legs missing, arms, and things like that. Oh, man. So, got to really hand it to the uh, medical crew. Yeah. They, they were unbelievable, you know, the, the service they gave to our troops. But, you know, I'd help bring them on board, put them in, because once we landed in Iraq, we would convert the aircraft over to a medevac. So you'd have to change the entire configuration of the airplane, put all the litters up and stuff like that. So we were able to take, like, I think in the 141, gosh, about 21 litters, and then walking wounded. How long does it take to to, to, to convert that once you land? Uh, you have to do it pretty quick. Yeah. Because the fact is we would land at night, mm. and then we'd take off before the sun came up mm. because we were sitting targets. Yeah. And last thing we wanted was a big airplane sitting on the tarmac and something for them to shoot at. So everybody worked in unison. We worked very quickly and we'd be able to convert those things over quickly. And then he'd start bringing the wounded out. And, uh, you know, if you took off during daylight hours, you didn't want to because when you took off with critically wounded, it was a slow 
take off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do any maneuvers because some of them, the head injury, the head injuries that these people had oh. would have killed them. Wow. So yeah. that's why we always wanted to get off the deck before the yeah. sun came up. Wow. And, uh, then, you know, flying into it, we do, uh, we do like what we call a corkscrew. You can be about uh, 8,000 feet up and then it's just a corkscrew on down and land. Wow. <laughs> it was, I remember the first time I did that, I was on one of my training missions. We're out at flying to Vegas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm up in the cockpit looking down. I go, we're landing. And, you know, Carlin goes, yeah, we're landing. I go, airport's way down there. I, you know, I'm used to this. Yeah. He goes, well, watch this. And woo, 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 oh, bam. It's like, man. damn, that was fun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Tom. So it was, it was neat. You know, was, a lot of the training we went through, the, these, the pilots were outstanding. We had a lot of uh, Air Force Academy grads uh, who, you know, did their eight years in the Air Force, went in with civilian pilots. And boy, when they came back to the military planes, it was like, kids with a new bike they wanted to play mm. and uh you know it was like we we'd have three plane formations and they go okay how low can you go and you know we got hills and stuff above the wings and and we got shit you know we're only 200 feet off the ground oh wow <laughs> and then when we did this i'm going okay that's a that's an 80 foot wing on that left side we only got about 100 foot clearance oh. so i'm thinking I better put my seatbelt on. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of neat things that, you know, these planes could do. And the yeah. pilots were so well trained. During, the, during that time period, as I mentioned the other day with you, the family really suffers. Yeah. People don't realize what families have to go through when we're deployed. I mean, the only thing on my mind when I'm working is, you know, doing my job. Mm-hmm. I got to make sure I'm 100% focused on that one job and that's flying. And we're... You know, now my wife's having to take care of the bank accounts, having to take care of the bills. And when I got activated, my wife was a full-time teacher, uh, working on her master's, a varsity softball coach, and we had a four-year-old. Mm, wow. And all that was dumped on her plate. So, uh, you know, being a reservist, uh, you know, 60 miles from the base, you had no support system whatsoever. No. There's there nobody to... To help my wife. Uh, you know, she had family nearby that helped some. I was fortunate. I had a twin brother who lived real close. And, you know, he'd babysit, take care of my daughter, help out as much as he could. Uh, you know, because I know that, you know, he wished that he was there with me doing my job. But medically, he couldn't do that. He couldn't get in because of some medical conditions. So he helped out big time at home. And, you know, here's my little four-year-old saying, you know, Uncle Glenn, can I give you a nickname? He goes, sure. Can I call you daddy? And he goes, until dad gets home. So, you know, he was a, he was a big plus. Yeah. So, but, you know, I talked to other other members that were in the military that got activated, police officers, stuff like that. The support the police officers got. I mean, not only did they get the double dip, meaning they got their civilian pay and military pay, but their union reached out to the family, hey, can we do anything? And there was people supporting them. Mm-hmm. My school district never ever reached out to my my family wow. my principal never reached out to my family yeah and when i was going through this training you know and then you know maybe i had two weeks off and i went back to teaching uh you know my principal sat down and said you know you need to make a decision i go between what well between playing military and teaching mm-hmm. so you're shitting me i remember 9-11 sitting in your office and you're seeing that you know we're, we're seeing the airplane hit and she's all worried about her 18-year-old son being drafted. 
Mm. I go, no, you know, he's not going to be drafted. We don't have the draft. We got reserves to, to step up. Yeah. So I'm stepping up for your kid to stay home and you're treating me like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to where, uh, yeah. Wow. I, I did not want yeah. to go back to work. I always say it, you know, uh, the, the spouses, you know, they don't really get the recognition I think they deserve yeah. because, you know, they really take that big brunt of the weight, you know, because you're military, uh, mili- it's military before family. The military don't, they just, you're the enlistee or, yeah. you know, being activated and it's like, hey, it's, this is what you signed up for and it's time to do this. It's, you know. Yeah, because, you know, when I first joined with the Navy Reserves, we weren't at war and, you know, I went one week in a month two weeks a year and my wife, you know, I was married when I joined that. Yeah. And you know, she, okay, you go, I I realize you want to do that. Go do that. Yeah. But boy, after 9-11 where I was gone all the time, she goes, wait a minute, what happened to, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Yeah. And, uh, so it it was very, very difficult on, on our, our marriage. Yeah. Uh, one financially, uh, I took a $72,000 pay cut within those two years of activation. And the thing is, when I first joined the military, they offered a mobilization insurance policy. And at that time, you know, my pay was almost equal, but I thought, you know, I better take it because I know eventually I'll make more money as a teacher. So I was paying into that every month, my military check, which is, gosh, close to half of it when I first started. And uh, when I got activated, I called them and said, hey, you know, I'll purchase your insurance policy. They go, oh, we don't have any, we don't have that anymore. You go, what do you mean you don't have that anymore? Oh, Congress never replenished the account because they used it all up for Kosovo and Bosnia. I go, so you tell me I don't get my pay difference? No. And that's where, you know, you used to, you know, pretty decent lifestyle at first, you know, we finally made money and all of a sudden you're dropping. Yeah. And then, you know, Every time I had a chance to talk to my wife when I was overseas, you know, maybe once every three weeks, if I'm lucky to get the phone, you know, phone card, the call, our, our big, our discussion was, Hey, we're going broke. I'm having trouble making payments. Uh, you got to go to pay and find out what the hell's going on. And when I finally rotated home for a couple of days, I went to pay and said, shit, my wife's saying that we're not getting much here. Well, they realized for over a year, they didn't pay my housing allowance. Oh, wow. And they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be. Mm. And so we got a retro check. But the, the stress that we went through for that entire year, trying to make ends meet. Yeah. And you, you being gone and not really being able to do anything about it. Yep. Uh, that's got to be real, real stressful. Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, when I did get home and, you know, the fact that, hey, I got two weeks at home. No, I only got two days. And this, my wife finally said, hey. Don't come home. Yeah. Don't come home until you're done. Right. Because every time you're coming in, you get our hopes up that you're going to be two weeks, you're only here two days. You get our hopes up, you don't even show up. Uh, you know, and I get home and, you know, she's been running the show, but you know, I had a military upbringing and I saw my daughter doing something. I said, hey, you know, she goes, hey, you're just throwing a wrench into our, our machine here. We got things worked out. Right. So, it's yeah. like, oh, Okay. So it was strange coming home. And, yeah. And when I finally got off my activation, got back home, I, we had to get through family counseling. Yeah. I was just going to ask, what was it like transitioning? Uh, very, very difficult. Really? Uh, you know, being gone, doing that. You know, I used to watch a, a movie called uh, Tour Duty as a kid growing up. 
and it was about the Vietnam, a platoon in Vietnam, and how the sergeant kept going back after his year. He'd keep re-enlisting, keep re-enlisting, because he wanted to take care of his guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I wasn't married and had a family, I would have stayed as long as I could. I just felt that I needed to be doing the job I was doing that was the men of acts. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are options, you know, where we could have picked other missions, but if I was going to be away from my home, my family, I'm doing medevacs, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, so when I was getting off active duty orders, you know, my squadron goes, okay, we're, we're going to be getting C-17s pretty soon. Uh, you need to sign up for that school. I go, wait a minute, <laughs> just getting home. You're going to send me to C-17 school. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't. So I went in active reserves for two years. And during that two years, uh, you know, I worked at our marriage, tried getting back in a routine of teaching. It was very, very difficult. I realized that, you know, when my daughter was playing sports, I couldn't sit in the stands. I just, any large groups, any large, I, I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started getting back into photography. I just felt better being by myself, just doing my own thing because it just felt strange being around people and you're going, these people know the cost of this war, what's yeah. going on, the, the mayhem that's happening and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I felt that I didn't belong with it. You said earlier you were talking to me how you have trouble sleeping too these days, huh? Yeah, uh, that that all started with the 141s. I, you know, our sleep cycles were, were so messed up. Uh, when we're flying contingency, so we we flew with the augmented crew, which means three pilots, two loadmasters, which means that they could fly us 24 hours and 45 minutes before they put us to bed. Mm. So those were long-ass days. Uh, granted, we had two loadmasters, and, you know, one had to be awake, in, you know, during the time period. So I was always low man on the tone pole. So we had just got up, got to the plane, did our pre-flight. Took off and you know, okay, go take a nap. Oh, shit, I'm not really tired. <laughs> you know? so I'd go up and try and try and sleep, and then you know he'd wake me up, and I'm not even asleep, and then you know just that whole cycle. Um, mm. Now I find myself anytime I'm not doing anything or sitting in a car, I I close my eyes automatically because I'm thinking, oh, I, I got to get as much sleep as I can. Yeah, and you know. Uh, being on alert status, you know, phone ringing in the middle of the night, and the sleeping with other crews that were being alerted, uh, I, I found that found out that when I was not due to fly the next day or anything, I started taking you know over the counter sleeping pills because my sleep cycle was completely out, out of whack, mm. and uh, I, I continued that for almost ten years actually. Wow! If I wasn't flying. Uh, because you, you know, you can't be taking those things while you're flying. Yeah. But you know, when I was home, I, I was taking that just, wow. just to sleep and, you know, to deal with stuff. Yeah. And you know, the biggest thing is that, you know, when I got married, when, when I met my wife, she, she didn't drink and it's like, yeah, I drank some, you know, I like to party and stuff, but there's a woman that I love and I don't need to drink. So I quit. So I wouldn't put that pressure on her. Well, I didn't drink for almost 13 years. Wow. But once I start flying medevacs, you get back, you're so hyped up, everybody's drinking, 
you know, I'd have to, I started drinking, yeah, you know, just to unwind and uh, to try and get some sleep. Right. So I started drinking, you know, while I was over there. When I rotate home, yeah, no drinking. But to this day, I've never told her I was drinking over there. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, to deal with what, what, what I was dealing yeah. with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, how are you and the family doing now? Yeah, we're doing great. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, when I took that two years off, it was going into third year. Uh, the marriage started coming back together. And my wife noticed something or she figured it out to where she came to me and she goes, I finally realized why you wanted to serve. And if you've got that need, you can go back. Mm. Because, you know, I, I was getting shit from my school district. I mean, when I went back to my school, the superintendent called me into his office. Hey, glad you're back. So you're back here for good. I go, no, I'm air crew. I can be gone tomorrow. Oh, you'll never get your tenure. I'll never get my tenure. Yeah. And, and this is how you're treating me. Yeah. And you didn't do paid differential. You're treating me that way. So that, that was very difficult. Uh, but and I was looking for other school districts and I landed a job in Newport beach and things were really going well. But my wife came up to me, she goes, you can go back. Mm. So I went back to my squadron. I had lost my slot. Somebody else had filled it. Uh, they go, yeah, you know, if we have an opening, we'll let you know. But a uh, combat camera called me. Hmm. They go, hey, we noticed uh, you did took photography in high school. I said, yeah, love photography. Well, I want you to come in and interview. So I went and interviewed, and combat camera picked me up. Nice. So I uh, went through combat photography school. I was in uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, unfortunately, about a month and a half in, my father-in-law passed away. And... You know, he got injured. I flew home, missed it by one day. He had passed away. And I was only, you know, three days at home comforting my wife. And then I had to go back. Mm. So I went back to school, graduated, and then went through my prog tour in uh, Arizona, Luke Air Force Base, where as it, my dream came true at Luke Air Force Base. Mm. I always wanted to fly in a jet fighter. Uh, oh, that was my biggest dream. You know, hey, I'm flying cargo planes. That's awesome. I enjoy it. But I really would like to sit yeah. in a fighter. And um, a colonel liked the work I did. And he goes, can you take pictures in the back seat? And I'd only been there two and a half months. Wow. There were guys at public affairs I worked with, been there three years. They never got an invite. Oh, wow. And But, you know, whenever I took pictures, I always gave them to whoever gave copies. You know, mm -hmm. thanks for letting me take your picture. Here they are. Use them for training, whatever. And, and, and a colonel asked me, and I got to go up with a a three-plane formation, got to go to the tanker. And in the 45 minutes, the colonel goes, okay, how do you want us? Okay, when diamond formation. You know, we're, I'm just oh, taking pictures. Wow. I can not believe. super cool. And then, uh, you know, we ended up three hours, and we had two, two uh, pilots that were training, so we went out to the dogfighting range. And uh, that first one is like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I brought a Ziploc bag for my bar. I, you know, I wasn't going to use one of those brown bags. Yeah. That wasn't going to catch it all. So I brought a big Ziploc, and I thought I was going to chuck. And then I remember uh, the crew chief says, hey, when you know you're turning, push the button right here. The right there, and he goes, yeah, that pre-inflates your G-suit. So, you know, we banked, and there's a slight lag. Yeah. And, you know, I'm ready to barf, and then I remember, oh, yeah, that button. 
And, you know, these planes are flying all over. I don't see them at all. So I'm looking at the radar. And every time I saw the, you know, the blimps go by, I start pushing that puppy. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, my, my head felt like a pimple when we turned, but you know, it kept me from barfing. What kind of uh, what kind of planes were they? F sixteen. Oh wow! Yeah, that, wow. that was just fantastic. And then landed, and I had a half hour to get over to my next photo shoot, and that was Senator McCain. Oh, so wow. Senator McCain came to the came to the base for a briefing, and that was the time to take his picture. That, so you know, I just had a great experience at combat cam. Uh, you know, brought back the, the love of photography I have. Yeah. And uh, I was ready to deploy to Afghanistan. You know, I was on the slot, ready to go uh, in a couple months. And then I get a call from a unit and they said, hey, want to go back to flying? <laughs> Shit, photography, flying. And I go, well, I can do my photography stuff on the outside. I'm going back to flying. Dang. So I went back to flying and got a seven, 17 slot, got trained, and then we started doing medevacs out of Afghanistan. Dang. And what was interesting, you know, during the time period with, with also the 141 and the 17, you know, I started thinking about these young kids, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds that are stationed there full-time in the combat zone. And, uh, you know, I just started asking, hey, what, what do you guys need? Uh, DVDs, books, this, that. And uh, I'd reach out to the school. I got hired. I was a CDM high school. And I said, emailed a you know parents and stuff and said, Hey, would you like to donate to troops? And if you want to donate, put it put everything in a box, you know, a copy paper, perfect box. Went right underneath the, the red seats. So if you're gonna do something, just put it in those boxes, have them, you know, designated area at the at the in the office and I'll pick them up whenever, you know, I'm rotating home and I can get back to the bed. And so I'd I'd have like fifty boxes. Wow. Of all this stuff that I'd take, you know, to Afghanistan and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I remember I talked to the Rotary Club and they donated 50 soccer balls and pumps. I took those and gave them to the people on the ground. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just really starting to get to know, you know, some of the ground personnel. And then something came out saying, okay, you can't can't take care packages anymore. Mm. Because when you think about, we don't know what's in each box. So, uh, I started asking them for their addresses. Hey, where can we mail stuff to? So they give us the address, email that address back home. And by the time I got back to Afghanistan, everybody, guy, hey, we got boxes from your school. (laughs) Yeah. Best boxes we ever received. Nice. Because, you know, I remember when I was in 141 and I was in Germany and it was during Christmas and somebody gave us a care package and it was filled with cookies. And it was elementary school from South Carolina. And, you know, hey, thanks for doing what you're doing. And I started corresponding with them. Yeah, nice. And, uh, you know. Those care packages are cool. Yeah. I remember getting a big Easter one out there in uh, Iraq during the invasion. Uh, Yeah. Big old box. Everybody thought it was mail. Like, oh, we're getting, we're getting our mail, but it was just one big care package. And it had, like, a bunch of chocolate and yeah. candy. It's amazing how the morale, your morale goes up. Hey, somebody remembers. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to help these troops out down there. Now, I remember meeting this, it was a warrant officer, and we're talking. And uh, I said, Yeah, you know, I got a, I work at a high school, Crown Mar in Newport Beach. He goes, Shit, I graduated from there. Is Jelnick still there? I go, What? He goes, Yeah, I graduated from CDM. Oh, wow. I said, Yeah, Coach Jelnick's still there. Wow. So it was just a small world. Yeah. And 
So, you know, I'd get their addresses and, and share and, you know, it was adopt a troop, send this, send that. And my school really came through. Nice. But I want to back up. It was something I did for my daughter because, you know, like I said, I was gone a lot. I took one of her teddy bears and I put a backpack on it and uh, I put some disposable cameras. I put a flight log in it. I put a little badge on it with my daughter's picture in the back. I said, hi, my name's Casey. My dad's in the Air Force. This is my teddy bear. Please take him around the world. So I took him to Afghanistan or to, to Iraq, met a couple of nurses, gave it to them. I said, send him back in a year. Well, a year later, I get a call from Talsia up in March. Hey, you got to come pick up your bear. I go, what? Yeah, your bear's sitting here. I show up. It's got a Hawaiian shirt on, polka shells. It's got an ID made for access to any anywhere in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's got a hat made up with Casey written across it. I uh, developed the pictures, and you got the bear flying the airplane, parting up with crew. Oh, wow. And all the Kakistans he's been. And that was something I wanted to do with my, for my daughter. Yeah. And uh, I brought her home, and she started taking, I go, no, 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 you don't take stuff off. Yeah. You know, so I had to box it up, but you know now she's becoming a history teacher, so I can't wait to take that back out and give that to her and say, hey. You know, oh, that's awesome. She remembers a little bit of it, but you know I didn't want her to be playing with it. Yeah, yeah. So Wow. Super cool. And then, you know, I'd taken flags with me, had them signed, and, you know, I gave one to my new school district, thank you for your support, you know, Iraqi Freedom, and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, I went to one, went to C-17 school and then, you know, flew medevacs there. Wow. And then uh, a lot of medical issues, uh, you know, occurred. I had hurt my back in the beginning. Yeah. And uh, it's gotten worse and some other Injuries where I had to basically be medically retired from, mm-hmm. from the reserves after got 26 and a half years. Yeah. And I, I miss, miss it every day. I miss the people I worked with and, and uh, all that. And it, yesterday I get a text from TJ. Because Lieutenant Colonel Pilot I flew with who lives in Huntington Beach. He reached out to me. He goes, hey, you're still in Huntington? So I'm giving him a call today. Oh, nice. And, you know, I hadn't talked to him in about four years. Wow. Yeah. That's super cool. So, uh, you know, the the connections you make and, and uh, you know, the people. Who yeah. Yeah. Good. Right on. Um, well, we're going to get ready to wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's already been an hour. Has it really? Oh, yeah. my gosh. Told you it flies by. Yeah, right? it does. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, you record for that long? I'm like, I'll watch when you sit down. It just flies right by. So yeah. um, any last words before we cut the tape? Uh you know, my just want to tell you about what my high school was doing. Crone Demar yeah. was there several years ago. Is that they did a uh, project with the history and the English department, mm. and they're basically doing what what you're doing. And what they would do is uh, is living history, and they were giving they were giving vets to interview, and we had vets from World War II, Korea. Uh, you know, the, remember the movie We Were Soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gentleman that actually fought in that battle, our kids got the interview. Oh, we had a uh, World War II Medal of Honor winner from D Day wow. that was being interviewed by these students, and it, and it brought history to life. Yeah, and that's why you know when you told me what you were doing, you know I'm 100 percent on board. Mm-hmm. This needs to be recorded. I mean, you know we found out at our post, uh, you know American Legion post that. Uh, you know, five of our World War II veterans died, you know, last month. Uh, that's history that 
is lost. The military documents everything. Yeah. But unfortunately, nothing's being documented of the personnel afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to get everybody's story in this world about yeah. what you're doing. Awesome, Gary. Uh, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you for doing this. I know this is all volunteer for you. And yeah. You're not getting a cent for what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, hopefully you get some support there. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks yeah. for being here. That make my mind scared Hold me hostage and they don't fight fair Who gon' pray for me and wipe on my tears Who gon' save me if you not right here Move this darkness and make my sight clear Take me away cause I don't like here Ghost of my past, they feelin' the night air Wake me up, I'm trapped in my nightmares